Hello, I'm Harriet Smith, and welcome back to Dietitian Cafe, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. To coincide with Eating Disorder Awareness Week, in this episode, we talk to two eating disorder specialist dietitians, Rosalind Hammer and Sarah Elder. We'll explore why we've seen such an increase in prevalence of eating disorders during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'll also discuss their recommendations for helping to manage this. Rosalind Hanna is a child and adolescent mental health specialist, eating disorder dietitian. She works in an adolescent inpatient ward alongside doing some freelance work. Sarah Elder is also a registered dietitian and she works with people with eating disorders, both in the NHS and as a freelance dietitian. Hello to both of you and thank you very much for joining us today. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. So, ladies, first of all, I, I wondered if you could both provide a brief overview, particularly for our listeners that don't work in, in eating disorders. Can you tell us a bit about what your roles entail? Perhaps Rosalind will begin with you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I started my role in September. Well, I was in another trust before that. Um, but most recently, well, September, we actually didn't have any admissions for eating disorders from September to January, but from January onwards, we did. So, a typical day, I start about nine o'clock. I go to handover, um, which is with nurses and healthcare support workers. Um, then we just go through the last 24 hours, what's been going on. Then after that, I, we um, check weights for um, our young people on Monday and Friday. So I just double check the weights, work out percentage weight for height. And then 10 o'clock, we have an MDT, which involves myself, um, case managers, um, psychologists, family therapists, psychiatrists, and um, members from tier three communities that might be their family therapists in the community and their CAMS worker. And that usually lasts about an hour. And then from 11 to 12, we have what we call progress and planning meetings, um, which happen every two weeks for that young person. That's basically where they're up to, how they progress and sitting in, and what our goals are for the next week, and maybe any discharge dates or how I want to progress. That's lunch, and then usually after lunch, that's when I meet with the young people and I go through meal plans with the young people that have got an eating disorder. And um, I sit down with them, we kind of discuss where they're at in their meal plan, and then we make any relevant changes. And um, then we maybe decide their meal plan for the next week and we go through those choices as well. And that usually takes about an hour, an hour and a half. And that could be the whole afternoon for me depend on how many I've got on the ward. Thank you. Sarah, is it the same for you or does your role differ to Rosalind's? Yeah, so I guess um, my role is really varied um, because I'm, and I've been working in eating disorders for, um, I think it's 10 years October time and I've had lots of different roles um, within sort of the trust that I work for. And I guess it, it is very rare, varied and at the moment I am working into our inpatient adult ward um, but I have worked into our community team, our day service, I've worked in CAMS previously as well. So the main aim really is that we're working with clients to support them to improve their nutritional status um, and I guess the one thing that we know is that eating disorders don't just affect physical health, it's social and psychological health as well. So what we do in kind of when we're meeting with people and meeting with people for the first time is looking at how it's affecting them and how it's affecting their quality of life and how we can support as dietitians. So 
very much kind of what Rosalind said. We might meet up with people and discuss meal plans, um, help them to tackle difficult foods. It might be that we think about things like social eating when we when we could go off the ward um, and kind of go out for meals and help them really think about what some of the thoughts are that they're having around food and how we can support them to maybe see things in a different way um, and maybe a more helpful way. Whereas sometimes the eating disorder can um, have quite, well, it does have quite a negative impact on people's kind of beliefs around food um, and therefore sometimes around their physical health. So our main aim really is to think about some of the things that, that that person might think around um, food and nutrition and how we can provide the most up-to-date and relevant information and support them to actually make some changes that they want to make in their lives um, and sort of be led by them really to, to make those changes on their journey to recovery. And does it require very much a multidisciplinary approach to working with these patients? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to be really mindful of that when we are working um, with someone with an eating disorder, whether you're working in an inpatient unit, whether you're working kind of um, with someone in outpatients or day service, you're going to have a whole MDT around you and who are supporting that individual with an eating disorder. So we each take a different role in that journey to recovery. Um, and it might be that as dietitians, we have to tailor our intervention to fit with maybe the psychological therapy that's that's been offered. So in adults, we might offer something like um, mantra, for example, which is one of the nice psychological therapies. So therefore, we would tailor our input to meet with um, the mantra module based on new um, diet based on nutrition sorry um, and and that's our role therefore is the dietitian to provide that nutritional information and support that person to be able to work on the changes and we work so closely with all of the MDT members that we have so we might have occupational therapy psychologists um, we've got our nursing team our psychiatrists sometimes have speech and language um, physios feel like I might have missed someone art therapists art ther uh, we've got a drama therapist and a music therapist mm -hmm. as well and as as Sarah said like being quite new working in disorders I find working with the MDT so invaluable um because I can learn so much from my, each of their roles as well and it really it really helps me know what my role as a dietitian and where where I need to have input and where if I feel I'm not skilled maybe in some of like the psychological interventions. I know that that young person's getting that from their family therapist or their psychologist. Absolutely. Yeah. So important. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that later on in the episode. Um, I wanted to ask you both about how your work has been impacted by COVID. Um, have you, for example, seen an increased demand for your services? Have you been redeployed? Uh, Rosalind, what impact have you seen on your service? So, as I said, we didn't have any inpatients from September to December, but we had three admissions in January and they were all readmissions. So they, um, those young people had all actually been discharged in the summer. And we do think that the impact of lock that third, that second and third lockdown coming in autumn and winter, we do think that that has probably um, caused them a relapse in the recovery and why they've been admitted again. 
Um, so whilst our inpatient service hasn't been overly busy, um, we've actually got a really fantastic outpatient service um, in eating disorders. And um, they've I've been actually helping them out because I haven't been as busy on the ward. So we've got a full-time dietitian um, covering outpatients. And we've got a paediatrician who um, she actually is really confident in managing their physical health at home. And that's why we don't have that many admissions to our inpatient unit. And we've actually got an advanced practitioner nurse. And I think that's what makes our young, our CAMS eating disorder team quite unique because we've got that consultant and that advanced practitioner nurse. They're very confident in holding the physical risk. So we try to keep people out of the inpatient unit as much as possible. So because they've had such a demand in services, I've then been not redeployed, but I've been doing extra work helping helping that service, um, which has been difficult at times because it's been a lot of remote work and I haven't been working with, I've been remote working with the young person, their family, and also remote working with the MDT. And it's just sometimes harder doing that team working when you're all working on different days from different offices. And sometimes make, I just really value all meeting down together as a team and having a discussion. Whereas what I find is often maybe we're having to grind emails or wait a day for someone else to come back in because we've had people shielding. So um, just those bars, I suppose everyone in the NHS has had with remote working. What I find as well is um, with a lot of my young people, they don't like to do video consults because um, often part part of the illness might is their body image and they don't like looking at themselves, unfortunately, in the screen. And I find that so I facilitate them by doing telephone reviews, but I find that quite hard because I feel like I can't engage with them as much. I can't really see their, I know their physical pro progress because their team's telling me like their weight gain, but um, I'm just not able to see that. And I feel like that part of contact, it limits the bonds that you can like form with your, um, the patient and the family. So I do miss kind of seeing that face-to-face -face consult. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the other dietitians we've had on Dietitian Cafe have mentioned the same thing, how having these remote consultations can really affect the um, the way that you're engaging with your patients. Sarah, have you found um, similar things in your practice? Are you doing remote consultations or are you still going into your place of work? Yeah, so I guess in, initially what we found in terms of the NHS that the workload very much increased because we wanted to make sure that all of um, the people that we were working with continued to get that support in the safest way possible. So we knew that the impact of, of COVID-19 was going to have such a huge and possibly detrimental effect on the people that we worked with. Um, so we looked at how can we ensure that we're still providing the support and any additional needs that anyone um, was needing, but how behind the scenes are we going to be able to get everything up and running so that we're able to meet those needs? Um, and what we we kind of ended up doing and what I guess we we looked at was thinking about, right, so a remote, remote working works really well because we're reducing down travel um, so therefore we can support more people during the day and also especially in kind of the different lockdown um, we haven't been able to travel we needed to work from home where possible um, but all of the difficulties that Rosalind just mentioned there that people find video consultations really hard um, some people don't want to talk on the telephone um, some people 
are in a house where they're not able to get privacy. So actually when they came to clinic, that was their time, that was their individual space, that was their time to really focus and, and talk to someone about the difficulties that they were going through. And then that was suddenly lost because there'd be another member of the family or people that were at university um, were in kind of that shared accommodation. And there was someone else next door who could overhear um, everything. So we really looked at kind of who needed to be seen face to face and um, who was kind of saying actually that they wanted either video call or wanted a um, telephone appointment. And it was all very much kind of individually assessed and individually risk assessed. Um, and I guess throughout the last coming up a year, um, my role very much has changed within the NHS um, just because of sort of where I'm I'm sort of needed really. Um, so initially I started off working in our um, community um, eating disorders team. So that very much was working from home, supporting people via video or telephone, um, going into appointments if needed and sort of if, um, if that was risk assessed and um, but that was very limited there was a, there was a few home visits if needed um, but then that proves difficulty as well because you're wearing PPE and building up that rapport with new people really difficult because they, they don't know what you look like you've got a face mask on you might have kind of um, a, a, she, a face shield as well at some point um, you've got gloves you've got an apron it's it's really difficult for people to actually build up that rapport um, so we really listened um, to what people said and and took on that feedback and looked at what was going to be best for each individual, really. Um, so more recently, I've been working into our inpatient ward um, and that very much is kind of going into the ward and meeting everyone and making sure that um, we're delivering that service and that support um, in person. But even with that, because of rooms being not made for people to be socially distanced there's still times where you've got to use video calls on a ward as well um so in a way that can be quite nice because you can do a video call from home um, and speak to a patient and they can see what you look like and it does help that rapport while whereas when you're on a ward and you've got all of your pp on it it's really difficult and some of my patients have been like oh that's what you look like and it just helps a little bit um, to be able to get some of those video calls in um, and we've we've put some pictures up as well so people know what we actually look like without a face mask on which I think has definitely helped um, but I, I am aware that the the changes that we have made within our trust I know it's not been possible across um, a lot of NHS services. I have heard of some NHS services having to kind of shut down for a few weeks to be able to think about what they're able to do um, and some kind of inpatient units stopping admissions. Um, but we were we were very lucky in the sense that um, we have a lot of our work that is online anyway. Um, so therefore, we were able to go into kind of that online working mode quite quickly. But I appreciate that a lot of NHS services do kind of still have paper notes and um, people don't have their own laptops. So I recognise how difficult it was for a lot of services and a lot of people to access the support that, that they needed. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, it's taken a lot of NHS trust a lot of time to evolve, but amazing how quickly and how the pandemic has resulted in so many dietetic departments going digital. And hopefully this will offer another option for patients and their treatment going forward after the pandemic as well. 
So Rosalind, earlier um, we talked about the impact of COVID on your um, hospital service that you work within. But in the media recently, there have also been reports of a sharp rise in um, the prevalence of eating disorders. I'm wondering if you've, you have any thoughts as to why we've seen this increase? Yeah, so I've been um, sitting in on our, uh, we call it, we call our team speed, burn wheels, um, and that's like our eating disorder team that does assessments. And I've been sitting in on those assessments. And what I'm hearing from a lot of them, um, this is young girls under 18, um, a lot of these thoughts and feelings that they had maybe around food and exercise, there is a correlation between lockdown and it kind of all startings. Not that's not for every young person, but there's a correlation. And what I'm hearing from a lot of them is a mixture of um, social media and the messages they're hearing in social media. Um, so like I think this time last year there's a lot of like fitness challenges, a lot of why eat in a day challenges, things like that. And these are very young, impressionable girls as well that have got a lot of peer pressure anyway. And then all of a sudden they lose a time to to concentrate on their eating and their exercise. And then it just kind of spiraled out of control. Like eating disorders are very complex and that's not the one reason, but that's a, a common thing I heard. Another common message that I heard in those assessments were a lot of these young girls heard the obesity message from like the UK government that those that are have diabetes or that are overweight or more at risk of having an unsuccessful outcome if they got COVID. And again, Whilst maybe some of us may know that those messages are more aimed for the older population, a lot of these girls took that message literally and um, they're quite anxious and they were like thinking literally if I'm overweight and I get COVID, I'm at risk of, of becoming really um, ill. And again, it's just they're very impressionable, so they are. And it shows you how easy these messages can be picked up by the wrong, not by the wrong people, but by impressionable teenage girls and how they just roll with it. And another reason that I also heard was just the isolation. I think not seeing their friends, not having their normal routine, um, schoolwork exams. A lot of children I work with, they're very motivated to do well in school. And all of a sudden, they just had no idea what was going to happen in the next three months, six months, a year. And that pressure and that uncertainty, they just had nowhere to go. And I suppose one thing that they could manage or control was their eating habits or their exercise habits and because maybe schools weren't on and maybe it depends some of their parents just didn't really they might have still been working and they just didn't really notice or they thought it was like a health kick and then I think a lot of the young people that we see they actually more got picked up in September October whenever the schools did reopen and they went back and maybe teachers or their peers noticed that they'd lost a lot of weight or they'd become a bit more isolated during that time and that's when those referrals came in. Absolutely. Sarah, have you noticed the similar? Yeah, I think that, that I'd echo everything that Rosalind just, just mentioned there. And I think we, we've kind of got to think about our sort of three cohorts of people really, because we've got people that are undiagnosed having eating disorders and they, they weren't then able to access treatment and get that diagnosis. We've got people that were in treatment whose treatment was then being affected. And then you might have people that have been in recovery and they're trying to get 
back into kind of services and they're finding it really hard because a lot of access into eating disorders services is via your GP. Now, if your GP is only doing telephone appointments or someone's finding it and finding kind of speaking over the phone really hard, then how are you going to be able to access your GP to be able to get into the mental health access team to then be able to kind of um, meet with the eating disorders team? And early kind of last year, there was a few kind of um, research papers that were done that looked at um, some kind of different reasons why people were finding lockdown so difficult Um, and what we kind of found with people that had eating disorders that they saw so many areas of their lives being disrupted and with a lot of our kind of adult population we found that that their living situation very much had to change so whether people had gone to university had to go home whether um they lost their jobs or couldn't afford to kind of live where they were living anymore. So had to move back in with parents or they felt quite trapped or they felt like they were being watched by other people um, or just other people in the house and having more influence over kind of um, meal choices and daily routines and found that really, really hard. And the fact that we were in lockdown and and for for such a lot of the last year, we've been in in sort of that that lockdown um, situation. What people were kind of finding was that they've got less access to those social networks. And what we know is that an eating disorder thrives off people being isolated, and therefore what lockdown did was lockdown very much put people into what could have been a very isolating situation. So therefore an eating disorder can very much thrive off that. Um, That uncertainty as well that Rosalind mentioned, we saw and we are still seeing quite a lot, not knowing what is going to happen in the future, not knowing at the very beginning. I mean, if you can remember, you couldn't get toilet roll, you couldn't get hold of different foods. The uncertainty if people were going to be able to get their safe foods and the foods that um, they felt um, that that they could manage. Um, if people were suffering from um, sort of um, bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder, would they be able to access food um, or is and then people that were suffering from um, anorexia nervosa sort of shared that it's it, it, the eating disorder kind of voice came in to say, well, actually, other other people deserve that food. You don't deserve that food. And that was really difficult for people to kind of manage those situations because they were having to go in and get the food that they needed. But when they get into the supermarkets, the being able to then get the food that they needed was really difficult as well. Um, so there's so many different areas of people's lives that are being um, sort of disrupted. So therefore, that kind of um, certainty that we normally know in everyday life of kind of having our normal routines, that was completely gone. Um, so we we did find that kind of that's when that eating disorder sort of crept in and was the thing that people found sort of 
their way of coping through this really difficult pandemic and, and managing that uncertainty, really. Um, and there was actually, um, I think it was a German paper that said around about 62% of people with bulimia nervosa reported a reduced quality of life because of COVID-19. That's a, that's a huge percentage. Um, and if you think about the number of people that do have eating disorders, um, that is that is a lot of people to have their lives really disrupted. Um, so it's, it's had such a detrimental impact on, on um, a lot of people that are living with eating disorders. So Sarah, um, I think that's a really interesting point you've made. You don't perhaps think about the impact that um, lockdown's having on all these different patient groups, you know, from elderly malnourished patients to eating disorder patients. I'm just wondering if there are any statistics to back up this increased prevalence that we've been reading about in the media. Um, so I've got some unofficial stats from from Wheels. Um, I, I spoke with my team to see if they had any. They said there's definitely going to be loads of reports and papers that they can get together next year. But from 2019 to 2020, in our service in under 18s, there was a 34% increase of referrals um, for young people with a diagnosis they think of anorexia. And in South Wales, again, an unofficial stat, but what they've looked at from 2019 to 2020, they actually seen a 73% increase of people trying to access their service. So, and what the paediatrician told me as well about our service was the young people that she was seeing um, that were being referred, they actually had lower BMIs. And we don't know if that's because, as Sarah said, they couldn't get access to the GP so therefore, it just spiraled and spiraled. And by the time they actually got help from someone, um, they'd lost more and more weight. So we don't have a BMI referral criteria because we're, we're CAMS, but she was seeing much lower BMIs than what she's seen in the past three years, which she said is quite worrying. And more, more young people are physically compromised. So more of the young people, when they did come to our assessment, they were more at risk of refeeding syndrome as well. And Sarah, is that echoed in national statistics from organisations like BEAT, do you know? Yeah, so I think um, the, the figures that Rosalind's just given, and I think a lot of services are collecting that data at the moment. So we haven't got anything from specific um, eating disorders teams, um, but I know that there has kind of been in the newspapers kind of three to fourfold increases in referrals. Um, but what we've kind of seen um, from BEAT looking at the statistics is um, that they saw a 97% increase of people contacting them between March and August in 2020 compared to 2019. Um, and actually 28% of people um, that contacted them shared that COVID-19 had actually contributed to their symptoms or had contributed to that relapse. So it's just showing, isn't it, that what impact COVID-19 really has had on people that are already um, suffering with mental illnesses such as kind of um, eating disorders. And that's just that's just one charity um, that is recognising that. So there's other charities that are out there um, who I haven't seen that have shared their statistics. Um, and as well, it, I think that when NHS services start to share their statistics, which I think probably will be kind of a year, I would have thought um, after kind of the 
um, we, we first sort of went into lockdown, I think that we'll probably be seeing very similar things to what Rosalind um, has just said there. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, we're seeing these increased statistics supporting the, the rise in prevalence of eating disorders. But what could we be doing on a public health or government level to address this, particularly given that it's Eating Disorder Awareness Week? Rosalind, what would you like to see happening on a wider level at the moment? I think we need um, more education schools because I'm working with the under 18 group. Um, often um, that's what I'm hearing is that they're getting these mixed, mi I know in schools they have to do healthy eating advice and it's very hard to do a one size fits all. But I think maybe even us as dietitians, if we could be supporting the schools in the education sector with how to maybe go about sharing a healthy eating message, but kind of catering to everyone because um, recently I'm part of a freelance group and somebody commented that she was watching a video that her, daughter got sent in I think it was a TED talk and it was just by some I, I'm not even sure who the person was but I don't think they were a qualified dietitian or nutritionist and I think we need to make sure that the education that's going out to schools is maybe written by nutritionists or dietitians to ensure that children and teenagers are getting um, advice that, that's appropriate and the language used as well isn't going to be triggering because um, it is hard to do a one-size-fits-all campaign Something that we're doing in our trust as well is we're doing a lot of education for GPs because we know that they don't get, GPs have to cover everything and we know they're not, they don't get much training on eating disorders during their training. So we've actually got a GP that comes and sits in, in our sessions maybe once a month and then she actually goes out to the other GPs within the area and tries to do like monthly or weekly sessions with them so that they can recognise maybe the warning signs or when they've got concerns and to make sure that those people they do have concerns about get fast-tracked into the service to try and delay any treatment plans as well. And Sarah, do you think we're doing enough at the moment on a government and public health level to address eating disorders or, or not? I, I don't think we are. I think... I guess what we've we've seen is everything that Rosalind just said there is that, especially with our doctors, is that they're not getting enough training and actually they are going to be your first line people that see someone who's suffering with eating disorders. And Beat did a survey back in 2018, um, or it might have been the General Medical Council, actually, I can't remember, it was on Beat's website, um, that actually doctors only get 1.8 hours of um, training on eating disorders. Now, if you think about how complex an eating disorder is in the way in which it develops, but also the treatment that surrounds that and the different types of eating disorders um, that there are, that is not enough training for some for a GP or a doctor to actually then be able to identify it, give the right advice and refer on. Um, so I think we definitely need to put more training into our schools, like Rosalind said, our universities as well, um, workplaces, um, doctors and nursing training as well, because it's those people that are working with very vulnerable people, people that are suffering with mental health illnesses, um, and that are working with people every day that maybe aren't able to necessarily recognize that someone is finding things really tough and someone's finding things really difficult. And we know that with eating disorders, it's 
it can be really difficult um, to actually identify if someone has an eating disorder or not. Um, the the illness is is very secretive, and therefore that that illness might be trying to kind of um, hide in in many ways. So therefore, we need to be able to train people on understanding that an eating disorder, you can't tell if someone has an eating disorder by looking at them. Um, an eating disorder doesn't just affect someone's physical health. Um, it affects someone's psychological health. It affects their social um, kind of um, their social life and um, how they are socially and what they're able to, to kind of engage in. So we need to make sure that we are targeting workplaces, schools, universities, like I mentioned, and helping people actually understand what an eating disorder is, because I think a lot of people have one idea of, of what an eating disorder is, and, and that that just isn't, isn't enough. Absolutely. And uh, Rosalind, earlier, you talked about the TED Talk video. Um, I actually saw that video, which was mentioned in the Freelance Dietitian Facebook group. Um, it was a yeah, it was someone talking about why sugar is poisonous, I think, and lots of other nutritional myths that we know are not evidence based. So I'm just wondering what role you think dietitians can play in helping to provide, um, you know, adequate nutrition education to young people and adults um, and whether you've both been involved in, in doing that. I know you're both, for example, active on social media. Rosalind, can you tell me a bit more about um, how you think dietitians can get involved? Well, I think um, for, within our roles in the NHS, there's always opportunities to do group work with patients. That's something I really enjoy. And I've been doing a lot of myth versus facts um, on my inpatient unit with both the young people that have eating disorders and the young people that don't, because it amazes me that the myths they hear and they they literally they don't believe me whenever I say that that's a myth. Like they will argue blue in the face of me and I'll have to find them like, the source or kind of like really prove their source wrong so I think we can be doing it like in our day jobs but um yeah I think recently I just started using Instagram and I think that's a tool but not everyone enjoys social media but definitely trying to dispel some of the myths out there in social media is a really good opportunity and um, podcasts and medias like that as well I think um as well um, health writing so a lot of dietitians now are in like the getting quotes in the daily mail which often is what a paper that will publish the new fad diet and um, so it's really good to see dietitians being recognized for our like evidence-based opinion and um, I think just having conversations with friends and even like if it's on the ward in the workplace um, in, a, in a nice manner having open conversation and kind of challenging people's thoughts and opinions around food like a lot of them um, the nurses where I work they're all in slimming world and I think I've just had a couple of conversations like is that helpful for you to be talking about that whilst we're in an inpatient unit because um all the young people I work with are very receptive they overhear everything and it's just being mindful about our language on a day-to-day -day basis how we're talking about food and body image and how we treat ourselves because we're reflections so we are to our patients so I think I went like off tangent a wee bit there. 
No, it's interesting what you say about nurses, you know, and discussing diets and things. And I know this is a controversial topic, but there has been talk about there being a, a higher prevalence of eating disorders amongst dietitians and nutritionists. I think there was a paper, I'd have to go back and have a look now, but I think there was a paper about disordered eating habits, perhaps amongst nutrition professionals, and there was quite a high prevalence. Um, but it's perhaps, you know, if people are spending a lot of time immersing themselves in learning about nutrition, as like you said, there is going to be a, that interest in food. Um, you mentioned earlier it can be difficult to detect eating disorders with patients, um, especially, I suppose, if there's a bit of a spectrum um, of disordered eating. Do you have any advice for dietitians who don't work as specialist eating disorder dietitians? Are there certain red flags, for example, that they should be on the lookout for amongst their patients? Um, Rosalind, any advice on this? So... This is actually one of the reasons why I made the move from paediatrics into eating disorders. Um, I find when I was working in paediatrics, and this is before COVID, so like three, two or three years ago, um, I often was seeing um, young young people on the general paediatric ward and we didn't know that at the time they had an eating disorder, but we would run all these tests because we couldn't find out what it was, like what the cause was. And I just felt so ill-equipped and like not skilled enough. And I think not me as a person not knowing something really frustrated me. And I was like, I don't think I'm doing the best, the best for this patient because we would run all these gastro tests, tests for like cancer, um, all these blood tests, all these scans. And then it would come out that, oh, we think we've got an eating disorder, but we have to refer to CAMS. It just seemed like such a long process. And I just didn't know what to do. I just was like, this person's in hospital and I don't think I'm doing the correct thing for them. So that's one of the reasons why I went into eating disorders so that I could get more understanding around it and some actual like um, clinical training. So I think now that I've, I'm on the other side, um, I think it's really good for any eating disorder um, dietitians to make that link with the general dietitians in their district hospital um, and provide some sort of like CPD and recently our trust have created like a guideline written by the eating disorder dietitian and the clinical pediatric dietitian of what to do if you think someone's what to do if someone's admitted and you think they've got an eating disorder and so try and give that dietitian who's not skilled or trained in eating disorders the confidence that she could put the right meal plan in place for that young person until they get referred to CAMS so that she can kind of recognise the signs a bit quicker so that if we're not there to support her, she knows at least step by step what she can do until she gets that diagnosis. Um, and I think, I know not every trust has the time and the facilities to do that, but I think that would be, in the ideal world, that would be fantastic to go out through the UK that every um, every general dietitian had some sort of written document like that to just give them a bit of like backup. Because I think it's a lot of pressure when you're in a general ward, you've got an eating disorder patient, you've got no training. It can feel like, what do I do? And they can be very time consuming as well if you don't have the skills and you're working with the family as well. And you might, um, sorry, I've like lost my train of thought. You're also working with the family and it's, it's just like, it affects them psych psychologically and socially. And I think if you've got a massive caseload of children from like zero to 12, you're not going to have the time to sit and give that person what they need. Yes. And um, I think it's difficult as well. Um, if you're a dietitian, you don't perhaps get much training on this area. Sarah, is there any um, where you can go and signpost a patient to if you're concerned that they might have an eating disorder? 
Yeah, I think if if you think that your patient has an, an eating disorder, I think, I guess, first off, it, it's the SCOF questionnaire is brilliant. Um, so that's S-C-O-F-F. Um, SCOF questionnaire is brilliant to actually identify if maybe um, there is a, a, a possible kind of eating disorder. Um, is, is someone got disordered eating? What's happening um, there? It's, it has been taken out of the NICE guidelines, but it's it's still useful to kind of maybe use that anyway, just as kind of a way to ask the questions and find out a little bit more about how their eating is maybe affecting them socially, um, kind of identifying how their eating disorder is maybe affecting them psychologically, um, thinking about how it's maybe affecting them um, um, physically as well. So asking those questions, I think, is really important um, to kind of to start off with, to actually identify what is going on for this person. Because if you've got someone that might might be they might have changed their diet or they might have gone on a health kick generally if if people have changed their diet you tend to know a lot about it so if you think in sort of um I don't know if someone will use your example earlier, Slimming World. If someone's gone on Slimming World, you tend to know that someone's on Slimming World because they'll talk about it. But whereas someone, when they've got an eating disorder, they might deny that they're feeling hungry, but they might have cravings. They might not want to tell you about the changes that they've made to their diet or their exercise um, regimes. They might become really socially isolated or withdrawn in mood. Um, they might, if they have got some weight loss, they might cover that up. Um, if they have got some weight gain, they might cover that up as well. And suddenly they become very interested in kind of that food and cooking and feeding other people and maybe not having as much themselves, withdrawing from meal times. So if you're finding that out as a as a, um, a dietitian that those kind of patterns of behavior are, are starting to occur with someone and that you're worried actually could could this be an eating disorder beat the eating disorders charity along with other other um charities is a, a really great place to start and what they've actually got on their website um is that they have a leaflet um that someone can take with them to their gp and what that leaflet does is explains what different eating disorders are um, and how a GP can actually support and um, get them access to the right treatment as well. So as a dietitian, if you've got that on you in your clinic bag or in your clinic, or if you've got the link ready, if everyone's doing things kind of virtually, you can actually give that to someone so that they can go um, to a GP and feel quite confident that they're going to get the right support. Because what we're kind of finding from some some people's feedback from their GPs is that the GPs are telling them that they're not ill enough or um, that um, we'll just watch and we'll just wait um, or we can't do bloods at the minute, um, but you seem fine. But that person psychologically is really struggling and needs some support. So it helps the GP to kind of actually understand what an eating disorder is and what they need to do about it. And I think as registered dietitians, we have that duty of care to find out from the person who is suffering what is going on for them. Um, because you might actually be the first person that they have spoken 
to about some of the struggles um, and just by you noticing and by you supporting and offering ad- that advice to actually go to the GP and giving them some extra information, you're helping them on that journey to, to kind of that recovery and for them to be able to change their lives for the better. Because if, if they've brought it up or if you've noticed it, that's the start of the conversation. And if there are dietitians interested in learning more about this area, is there any training or reading that you might recommend? Or do the British Dietetic Association, for example, have any useful resources that you might recommend? Rosalind, any thoughts on this? Um, I actually, it was hosted by Sarah back in September. I did, um, the BDA did a two-day course. Um, Sarah will correct me. Is it called Advanced Eating Disorders for Dietitians? Is that it? It is indeed. And there was a course before that as well called Introduction to Eating Disorders, Learning Disabilities and Mental Health. Mm -hmm. And I I find that really, really valuable. And um, once, like in my trust, we do a lot of CPD. So like monthly, like a psychologist will lead in CPD, then the paediatrician will lead on it. And I really enjoy that from learning from like all the MDT, making it specific to their role but that's been really invaluable to my learning as well. Um, But I find the BDA, the two-day course, um, especially like having just started eating disorders, it it gave me like the introduction that I needed. Sarah, how did you end up working in this area? Is is there extra training you need to do in order to become an eating disorder dietitian? Yeah, I am... I'm going to be honest, I accidentally fell into this area um, of dietetics. So I'd applied for a job in CAMS um, in the the local area where I grew up. And it was a part-time post. um, And I was really interested in sort of working in pediatrics. Um, And the job came up in CAMS. And I was like, oh, this would be really interesting. There was um, eating disorders, ADHD, um, autism, And I was like, oh, this is going to be so interesting because as much as I'm very interested in sort of nutrition, I was interested in the psychological side of things. And and, um, so I I went to work in the the tier three services and a little bit like Rosalind, I felt like I was finding it really hard to support people that had disordered eating, eating difficulties. um, And I just wanted to be able to do more. So I ended up working into the specialist areas and honestly, I've loved it ever since and I haven't worked anywhere else since. Um, And I think that if people are kind of wanting that experience um, that your local teams will be able to offer shadowing experiences. And I think that's probably your first step to to find out what an eating disorder dietitian does a little bit more. Because like we said at the very beginning, it's really, really varied. And depending where you're working, you'll be supporting in loads of different ways. So you might be doing training, you might do an education sessions, you might be doing um, group sessions, um, one-to-ones, social eating. Um, there's loads of stuff that, that you would be doing. So it, it's such a, a, a kind of a varied job role. And I think the thing that I love about it the most is 
the people that I work with. Um, and I've had the privilege of working with some people through their journey in through CAMS and into um, sort of adult services and seeing people recover and being able to, to get back their lives um, that they once had. And I think that people are so incredible and so brave to go on that journey of recovery and battle with such the difficult thoughts and emotions that they're having. It's such an honor to be kind of part of that um, and to help someone to actually regain control of, of their lives. And that's the bit that I sort of cherish and, and love the most about, about this job because you do really get to know your patients. You get to know them well. They get to know you as well. Um, and I just think I, I personally couldn't imagine working with with any within kind of any other area of dietetics um, because I just don't, I don't think that I would necessarily get to to kind of be a part of that journey and support people as much as as we do. Um, I, I don't know about you, Rosalind, what your thoughts are on that. No, I I just gonna um, say um, well, sorry, I'll go again. <laughs> I agree with you on that because I in my first um, community inside patient that I seen, I actually got to discharge her recently, and. Um, I had, it sounds so cliche, but I had happiness tears. And it's the first time in like a long time I had that. Like I built such a bond with like her and her mum and they were so grateful. And I know patients are always grateful, but like they were just so happy because like whenever she came to the assessment, like she wasn't the girl, that she wasn't the daughter that her mum knew her to be. And we can't, I feel like I went on the journey with them and like as I reviewed her like week by week and worked with her I got to see her personality coming out the personality that she had before the eating disorder and that was probably about five months now she had a very um a very good recovery she's very well supported but um it was the first time in a while in my career that I had like real tears of happiness like I was so so happy for her and like I was going to like miss them as well so there's definitely a lot of um job satisfaction as well as days that could be hard. Um, so yeah, I would agree with you there. I was just going to say, um, for people that want to get into um, working in this area as well, I find the BDA, the, the specialist group CAMS, to be really helpful. Like I've, um, So I think the CAMS group is a subgroup of the mental health group, and they meet quarterly, and they've always got guest speakers doing like webinars, so there's lots of extra CPD. And from that group, um, I've actually met a lot of dietitians working in this area and I've had a couple of kind of like ad hoc supervision sessions with other dietitians and I can't get over how helpful other dietitians have been because I think often there's not that many eating disorder dietitians in your trust and you're often like lone working and everyone kind of appreciates that and we all kind of like look out for each other. So along with COVID, I've had a lot of remote supervision sessions, but everyone's been so willing to like give me that time, which I've been really like, like just so grateful for and um when I took my first post I was recommended to read the book help my child has an eating disorder um I can't remember the offer but I'll link it to you after Harriet but I find that really useful to read because it was another um it was reading it from a parent's view and like obviously I don't have children and it was it was a really good way for me to kind of put myself in the family's position so that I could really emphasize with like how they feel going through um, the process when their child's got an eating disorder. So just if anyone wants any extra reading, that was a book that I find quite helpful. 
And I think that those books are so important because I think there's lots of training that you can go on. So there's different places will do different lots of training. And um, obviously the, the British Dietetic Association has their two day training as well. Um, there's different books that you can read on kind of um, physical health, which I think is really important um, as a dietitian that you are up to date on the physical effects um, of eating disorders. Um, and of the different types of eating disorders. And then I guess, depending on whether you're working in CAMS or adults or the eating disorders um, that you are working with and supporting people um, to recover from, there will be additional kind of psychological training. Um, so things like mantra, CBT, there might be guided self-help. Um, I know there's the um, Maudsley method, the family-based therapy um, that kind of CAMS would go on. But I think the, the books that you mentioned there, speaking from a parent view or even some of the books that um that someone will read will sorry write after they've had an eating disorder and recovered are so important because that's your opportunity to really understand and be in their shoes and and understand what they're going through and I think that I learn from my patients and the people that I work with every single day and there's a few people that still do kind of some work that have recovered and actually hearing what they heard back then compared to what you thought that you were um, offering and what support you were offering um, is really interesting and, and it really helps me change my approach um, because what what I've found is it's the kindness of the dietitians, it's the time spent that that we have to actually speak with them and support them through some really, really tough times. And that's what the feedback that we've kind of had, or I, I've had that people find really, really helpful that we're there, we're trying to understand how they are feeling and support them with a care plan that fits them. Um, and I think that is one of the most important things that I ever learned because when I first went worked in eating disorders I went in in sort of fix it mode um to say right I'm going to support and I'm going to really um fix people and it's going to be it's going to be great and I'm going to deliver this brilliant service but I actually had to take a step back and listen to my my patients and say what is it that you're needing um and what support do you want and let's let's go with what your needs are um and actually i'm not here to fix it i'm here to be that helping hand on this this journey that you're about to go through and the feedback from from my patients is is so so much more important than sort of any book or anything that can actually be taught within university or training courses um so yes books are brilliant and i think from a parent point of view is great um but if you can actually sit down with someone who's been through that and um they're willing to talk to you about what their experience is and and, and what they need from you i think for me that was that was better than than any course that i could possibly have been on I just wanted to, I really agree with you, like Neil in the head, sir, when you said about the fix it, because I come from being like a cardiologist, a pediatric dietitian, seeing babies that then we like feed them up and get them ready for like major heart surgery. And um, then we discharge them. When I first went into eating disorders, I found it, I, I struggled about change. I had to change my mindset. I almost had to change. I, I nearly had a fixed, often the young people I work with, they've got very fixed mindsets. And that's what we work on is trying to help them break down those rules. 
But I actually reflect it and realize I also had a fixed mindset that um, recovery is a long winding road. It's not a straight road or linear. It goes up and down and everything in between. And I think um, I've really, not to be cliche, I've grown as a dietitian from, as you said, Sarah, I've learned so much from the patients. It's changed my whole approach and definitely um, I've gained so many like therapeutic skills and motivational interviewing skills that have been so valuable that I've learned you can read all theory and I've did the courses but um I could do more courses but yeah I've definitely my patients have taught me the most so far I'd say it's incredibly inspiring I'm a dietitian not from a specialist eating sort of background and just to hear the profound job satisfaction that you've both talked about and how you've you've been able to hold the hands of your patients on their journey and, and see this really um, incredible progress that they're making, especially in light of the current situation with COVID at the moment. It can't, we're just coming to the end of um, this podcast episode. And um, my final question to you both is, it can't always be easy working in this area. I imagine it can at times be perhaps um, stressful or indeed sad. So how do you um, switch off from work when you are working in mental health with quite seriously ill patients sometimes? Rosalind, how do you switch off? Yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. It is really hard to switch off at times and that's something I struggled with. And especially with COVID, I think it's very easy to like bring our jobs home at the minute. We've got no like work-life balance. Um, so I've just been using yoga and meditation as my like downtime where I literally switch off from everything. Um, but our trust is very good that we hold um, staff support sessions where we can kind of debrief from our day, discuss any difficult situations. And I get a lot of support from senior psychologists and counsellors at work. So I feel like they um, are very pro looking after my mental health. Um, on a side note, I also got a puppy um, in January, so I call her my therapy dog. <laughs> so when I have a bad day at work, I'm literally like, Luna! <laughs> and um, she she's literally my therapy dog, so she is. <laughs> but um, no, I have to say, I don't, I don't know if that's the same, if it's mental health, but definitely um, I get a much more staff support than what I've got in other places I've worked before. And I think that's probably because of everyone's backgrounds and how... Um, we all know how important it is to, if we burn out, then no one can look after our patients. So it's important to look after ourselves first as well. Definitely. You've got to put yourself first before you can put others first. Sarah, how do you switch off then? I would agree with everything that Rosalind just said. And do you know what? When when you said, how do you switch off? My immediate thought was, my dog. Like, he's not here now because he'd be barking. Um, because he'd be want to, he'd want to be involved in the podcast recording. Um, but yeah, I think that it's so important that we've got things outside of our work because um, we need to look after our own mental health. We need to look after our own well-being and um, being able to have different things outside of work. And my dog is the thing that I'm, I'm able to take him for walks um he's the one that's kind of i know it sounds silly but he's always there um and he's all he always wants to cuddle um and i think that the work and the people um that we work with our mdt our dietetic teams um we have we have brilliant mdt working and we all look out for each other. So if we do think that someone is fine, is having a really tough day, whether you're on the ward working with them or remotely, um, that you're kind of checking in with them. And I think that our trust have been absolutely brilliant throughout 
the whole of this pandemic, we have wellness windows, we have opportunity to do mindfulness, um, we have um, timeouts where that are kind of put in, into our diary to remind us to have time. There's um, we kind of meet up as a smaller eating disorders team and also a bigger eating disorder, um, a, a bigger dietetic team. Um, just to kind of make sure that everyone's okay and check in with each other and have check-in, check-out sessions. And I think the fact that when you're at home and maybe the, the other people, um, so my husband, for example, he doesn't work in the NHS. And I think that that's a, a good thing because you do switch off then. And I've got to say, brilliant things on Netflix recently. Um, that has been great to kind of switch off. <laughs> Any top recommendations? <laughs> Do you know what? I forget what everything's called. I watch it, but I, um, or I don't know whether I'm allowed to say it. the S Creek. I don't know. I don't know if you heard of that one. It's oh, yeah. spelled like, it's spelled differently, but it sounds like a swear word. So I won't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I but know yeah. the one that you're referring to. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much ladies for your time this evening. It's much appreciated. Um, I hope that our listeners found this episode interesting and our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon. 